Lovely to see you all. I was going to say all, but actually we're pretty light on the ground, aren't we? Who actually went up to the Anzac service this morning? Anyone? Ah, well done, Jamie. You look more awake than I do. (laughs) Thanks, love. Um, Well, as Graham said, we are launching into Genesis this morning, which is exciting, but also somewhat daunting. I spent 12 weeks, uh, did a 12-week course on Genesis at Regent, and uh, we only scratched the surface, So, um, and that was by Old Testament scholars. We are not Old Testament scholars, um, however, we, um, yeah, we're going to at least address the topic and prayerfully ask the Lord to reveal to us what he wants us to um, glean from this amazing book. Um, we're going to start with Genesis 1, 1 to 2, and Jane is going to do the reading for us. I'd like you to just close your eyes and listen to these words. Pay attention to what jumps out at you. We're kind of doing a little bit of a Lectio Divina um, exercise listening to it. I'm going to get Jane to read it actually just three times. And so just close your eyes and listen to it, or you can follow the words on the screen if you like. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So many questions spring to mind. In the beginning of what? Did God create the heavens and earth from scratch, or did he create it from something that was formless and empty? What is the surface of the deep? What does he mean by the spirit hovering? Where did the water come from if he hadn't yet created the sea? Is this meant to be read literally or allegorically? And when did all this happen? There are so many questions uh, that I have, and I'm sure most of you have, uh, that arise as we open this book of Genesis in the beginning of the Bible. And as I said before, we're only going to scratch the surface um, and probably we're going to actually uncover more questions than what we answer as we dig into this book of the Bible. But it is important to start somewhere and the beginning is usually a good place to start, isn't it? 
Genesis sets up the scene, especially the first few chapters for the rest of the biblical story. It's the story that we are part of. This is a story that is rich and it is full. At parts, it is completely awful and evil. And at other parts, it's totally awe-inspiring and reflecting the holiness and the grandeur of God. It's a story like no other. And if we were to spend our lifetime digging into it, we would uh, still only just begin to probe the depths of the richness that is in this story. There is a beginning, a middle, and an end. We are somewhere in the second half. And uh, Tom Wright talks about the scripture being a six-act play, and we are in the fifth act. So we are quite a way through, but we've got a one-whole act to follow. And as Christians, it's really important that we understand the story. And we need to know it because it tells us who we are. And it tells us, more importantly, though, who God is and how he acts in this world. Knowing this whole arc of the biblical story gives us an assurance and a framework for life that people who don't know God don't have. We do hope later at some point, either this year or next year, to do a six-part series um, that covers the whole of the biblical story, just in big, broad brushstrokes. Um, so that we can see the big overview and be reminded of how it all fits together. But for now, we're just starting uh, this series on Genesis and diving semi-deep. We don't know how long it'll take. We're assuming at least a few months. Um, We will spend more time in the first few chapters. The fact that we're just covering two verses today, don't panic. We're not going to take that kind of approach for the rest of the book. Otherwise, we'll be here for years. Um, But the, the first few chapters are particularly formative. Uh, for this book and setting the rest of this uh, stage for the Bible. And as I said, we don't pretend to be Old Testament experts, um, but we are prepared to try and research questions that you might have. So uh, the white box at the back on the table, the welcoming box, I meant to bring it up with me, um, you are welcome to submit a question on paper, or you can text it to us, to me or Graham, or you can email it to Rose, uh, and we will endeavour to answer some of those questions. Not all of them, but some of them. Uh, we had this at our, um, in our lecture at, at Regent, and it was awesome just hearing what sort of questions people had. And it's also important to say uh, right now that many of us were raised on a diet of Old Testament through Sunday school books, flannel graph boards, and other ways of pre- presenting things that didn't always depict the complete truth of the, of the biblical story behind each of those stories. And I don't want to, for a second, pull apart what we were fed as kids or young adults um, because there is so much value in just hearing the biblical stories for themselves. God's word transforms no matter how it's presented. Um, But sometimes the stories glorified certain people or heroes or actions rather than God himself. And we just need to be aware of, we come to this text with paradigms we've been shaped in certain ways And we need to have a humility as we come to approach this text. To hear what God might want to say to us that might be fresh and new and sometimes challenging. Academic scholarship has come a long way in the last 30 years. um, And we know more now about the way the ancient people lived uh, than um, perhaps we did 30 years ago. So um, we kind of need to have this open humility um, posture. And us as preachers and, and writers... We're, we're feeling very humble right now as we, as we approach this text too. Many of us have been taught to read the text of Genesis literally uh, and the whole Bible literally without understanding that there are actually big problems when we do this. There are many varying forms of literature in the Bible, some historical narrative that is indeed meant to be read literally, like the story of Moses and the life of Jesus. 
Uh, but there are also many parts of text that we read differently. Poetry, letters, parables, hymns, wisdom literature, prophetic texts, apocalyptic writings, and myth. And that's not all of them. There are a few other genres in there as well. Most of us understand when uh, Jesus told a parable, um, the facts weren't literal, but the truth behind it was. So, for example, the prodigal son, we know that that was an illustration that Jesus was telling to convey a certain truth. There wasn't actually a prodigal son who left and did what the prodigal son did. There may well have been cases of it, but Jesus was telling it as a, as a prodigal, as a parable. What, was inter- what, was, what he wanted his audience to hear then and now was that God is like that father with arms of grace, ready to welcome prodigal sons home, or sons and daughters home. Uh, and same with the parable about the lost sheep. Jesus doesn't actually have 99 sheep wandering around in a paddock somewhere uh, with one missing that he went off to find. Uh, no, he is communicating that every one of those sheep were loved by the sheep, just like all of us are loved by God. And so when I tell you that many parts of Genesis are of this genre called mythological text, some of you are going to want to throw rotten fruit at me. That's because we in our modern mindset understand the word myth to be something completely made up. Something to do with, you know, no real meaning, uh, like the ancient Greek myths that all the, uh, about all the gods and what they did to one another, the seven-headed snakes, and all sorts of other weird things. That um, They're kind of stories that actually have no real meaning. They were just kind of folklore. But in the biblical and theological world, mythological means something different. The genre means it's more like a parable. Stories are told using illustrations so that the audience wouldn't take the, li- the details literally, but could see the important truth behind them. And we're going to take a look at the creation story next week, uh, but we need to understand the genre of myth. And whether you believe it was a literal account or not, we mustn't get hung up on the details of how it might have happened, but to look at the message that God is wanting to communicate through these accounts. We're going to be drawing out these messages each week, particularly the ones which tell us what God is like, because otherwise it really does just become another story or something interesting to know about. It's not life-changing, which is... Actually, the purpose of Scripture is to, is to change us. And you might ask us, why are we bothering to look at the Old Testament when most people don't believe it applies to us anymore? And this is a misunderstanding of the Old Testament. There are cultural references and parts of the law that don't apply to us today in the same way. But the truth and the principles do. And as Paul writes in 2 Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we're only equipped when we know the Old Testament. And we can conclude that Paul meant the Old Testament, or what we, what we now call the Old Testament, because the New Testament hasn't been written yet. And Jesus himself uh, emphasises the need to know and use what we call the Old Testament. Now, often in his teaching, he uh, used quotes of the Old Testament scriptures, including his prayer on the cross. And when he revealed himself to the road on the, um, on May, the road to Emmaus, what does he do? He goes through the Old Testament scriptures that point to himself. So we can only begin to have a better understanding of who God is and what Jesus did on the cross and how the whole of scripture holds together when we dig into the Old Testament. Now, I'm aware there's a lot of you here who are on the same page as us here. But for the sake of those who need to think about this, um, we've included this. I've probably said before, but I grew up in a Testament, on a diet of New Testament, and hardly knew the Old Testament at all. 
sorry, Sunday school and school and all sorts of things like that. And when I went to Bible, Bible college, I was fascinated by the Old Testament. I couldn't believe how it just opened up in front of me. And then when I went back to the New Testament, when I went back to look at the life of Jesus, I suddenly understood the cross in a way that I never had before. What Jesus did and the significance suddenly made so much more sense. There's just a couple more misconceptions about the Old Testament that affect the way we book, uh, we approach the book like Genesis. Misconceptions such as the New Testament has left the Old Testament behind and replaced it. A misconception that the Old Testament can't be read in the same way as the New Testament. A misconception that the Old Testament is about Israel and the New Testament is about the church. A misconception that Old Testament ethics have been superseded by New Testament ethics. And perhaps one of the most damaging that the Old Testament is about the law and the New Testament is about grace. God is a God of justice and of grace in both the Old and the New Testaments. We don't have time to go down this path today, uh, but it is really important to realise that we've all been shaped uh, in the past how we approach the Old Testament and, as I said, we need to come with humility to it. That said... It is a very difficult set of books to get our heads around, and it requires a lot of interpretation and study at multiple levels. And thank goodness there have been many godly theologians who have done this sort of work for us. They've worked hard to uncover the cultural, linguistic, and temporal layers, and it requires a lot of work because that audience who lived 2,000 years ago, plus, 2,000 plus, lived so differently to the way we do today. They understood life uh, And the sorts of questions that they asked about life were very different to the way we live and the sorts of questions we ask today. Having said that, there are commonality, um, and we'll get to that in a minute. There are a lot of assumptions that were made by the authors because of what the audience knew that we don't, which is why we have to work a lot harder. Some of you will have heard me use the example before of the Englishman and woman who grew up knowing about the world of knights and castles um, and kings and queens and palaces and forts and things like that. Everyone in the UK, uh, and most of us in New Zealand, understand when we hear a story that involves a knight on a horse, uh, we don't need much explaining that this probably means a man in in, um, armour atop a war horse, probably out to save a damsel in distress, or from a dragon, or something like that. There is a pool of knowledge, a shared understanding around a single image. And if you are a writer, you won't need to write all of the um, background to make readers understand. And usually if you've seen one of these movies or one of these genre, movies in, of a genre, you will probably already have that music playing, you know, some kind of classical music playing or dramatic music. And there's a, there's a shared kind of understanding that goes with these sorts of images because of the way you have been raised. Now imagine now if you are an Englishman and you go to see a remote tribe of um, Inuits or remote Eskimos. Um, Inuit, Inuits is the more politically correct name. And you start talking about medieval knights. You're going to have to explain everything in a whole lot more detail. Uh, They're not going to have an idea what a horse is. They're going to wonder what the heck's a tree. Often up in those sort of remote places, they don't have big trees. Um, What's a castle? Uh, If a king can tell a knight what to do, can it tell the day what to do? You know, just, you know, all sorts of things. Where are the huskies in in um, in the seals in the story? There's a whole lot of background knowledge and understanding that they are missing, uh, that they will not be able to imagine as the Englishman or us, you or I would do. They're going to be asking all sorts of questions that we don't have to ask. So this is a little bit like when we approach the Old Testament. We are like Inuits when we come to the Bible. We are trying to understand the world of the Hebrew people that lived several thousand years ago and how Genesis spoke to them. And sometimes we get it really wrong. 
We can get it really wrong when, the, when we assume the audience was like us and we're asking questions like us. And a lot of Christian debates and misunderstandings and fallouts are based, um, that are based in the book of Genesis are especially around this creation account. Because we as modern readers come to the text with assumptions and understandings that were different to those people back then. Genesis and the other Old Testament scriptures were never actually meant to answer some of the questions that we modern readers ask about. We as modern readers have an obsession with knowing exactly how things happen and chronological time periods. We, um, that's why we have modern science. Modern science has arisen because of we, this desire to know how the earth and nature works. But before the rise of modern science, it was assumed that there were spirits behind every rock and every tree. The, the world was partly divine. Before the rise of modern science, uh, was, the weather systems were governed by spiritual forces and God sending judgment. With the Enlightenment, humans began to ask questions. They wanted to know what our Earth looked like. In shock horror, it wasn't flat. It was actually round like a globe. And ships didn't disappear off the planet, eaten by sea monsters. An earthquake isn't a god having a fit, but the movement of tectonic plates. We've come a long way in several thousand years. And the audience to the book of Genesis was similar to these pre-enlightenment. They believed that there were multiple gods, each responsible for various elements of nature. This is a good place to pause before we dive into the actual text of Genesis and look a little bit more at the background uh, context for this book, and in particular who that original audience were. So as I've said, the original audience and the Hebrew people, they lived in this religious environment, which meant they believed the following. There were multiple gods, but they were far too distant and functionless to be of any real consequence to life. These are some of the gods that they believed in. That bottom left-hand one is God Baal. And these gods were closely tied up with the physical environment, the gods of the sky, the land, the earth, and the afterlife. And this is what they believed the universe looked like. Notice there are several layers of heavens, which is why when we read in the beginning, uh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, not God created heaven and earth, but the heavens, because they believe that there are multiple layers of heavens. Um, What we consider as natural events like floods or earthquakes, for them they're regarded as actions of gods. The gods were part of the cosmos. So they altered things within it. They were able to cause disturbances like the weather systems and natural phenomena, but they themselves could not create. They could not bring something into being. They were created themselves. And a useful analogy uh, is that they could move existing furniture around, but they could not build something or manufacture anything new. They were sort of viewed as superhuman, um, but had more power and lived longer. Again, think of the Greek, Greek mythological gods. They were believed to be able to procreate. They had the ability to make mistakes. They needed to eat and sleep and all those sorts of things. And they lived in community and they made group group decisions in a divine assembly. And worshippers often sought mercy and compassion from them. Multiple offerings were made to multiple gods in order to please them so that they would not be displeased and send a flood or a drought or a similar catastrophe. The gods all had functions and names, so people weren't actually interested at all in the origin of nature or the physical matter. Instead, they were interested in how to relate to them. How do we relate to these gods? How do we please them? What is the nature of these gods? And Graham will talk more about uh, the concept of creation, uh, which was not so much the physical manufacture of things, but the assigning of roles and order. And he's going to talk about that next week. 
But the gods were required, or believed, to require various things from the human population. We were created, or humans were created, to meet the needs of the gods. Humans were a slave force, so to speak. If these weren't met, if they weren't, um, the gods sent punishment. So there was this massive anxiety for the people um, in those ancient Mesopotamian religions. As bad, but as bad as life was, the afterlife was considered to be far worse. The purpose of human life um, was to procreate because the worst possible fate was to die and become a homeless spirit. If you did not have a family and you could not have the proper burial and funeral procedures, then you might have no place to go when you die. People needed to ensure that the spirit of the dead had somewhere to go. Otherwise, they would wander for the rest of eternity. They were considered to remain part of the family. So you needed to have family. And you can... As we read about this and hear about this, it just brings so many of the Old Testament stories to the obsession with having children and the obsession with um, the devastation of some of those women who couldn't have kids. You can begin to understand some of the background that had influenced them. Um, The fundamental hope was for a peaceful rest in the afterlife with a continuing sense of community with um, living descendants. And there was certainly no concept of being with God when you died. That was just so foreign. And in Egypt, the gods were actually believed to judge the dead person and lead to a particularly nasty ending for that person's spirit if you hadn't uh, lived or served that god or offered sufficient sacrifices while you were alive. So we actually have it pretty good. (laughs) And it wasn't only this polytheistic religious world around them and the demands of the god that caused them great anxiety, but of course the physical environment too. They were at the mercy of the weather systems. They had quite primitive farming systems compared to what we have today. And some nations were much stronger than others. Anyone who's done ancient history will know Egypt was strong and known as the breadbasket of the area because the Nile was a very predictable river, therefore a more stable environment. And so in times of famine, everyone went to Egypt to get food. And again, that ties in with biblical stories. So this sort of background knowledge, and I've only brushed the surface, helps us to understand the sorts of questions that these people asked of the text and that they needed to know and what God was wanting to communicate and answer to them. They didn't ask questions like, is there a God? It was more, which one do we follow? Uh, The presence of God was given, a given. Therefore, while we come to the text sometimes with questions of, is there a God? Or how does this text prove there is a God? They came to the text with, well, what's this God like? How does he relate to us? And what is the purpose of this life? And these are questions that we often do still ask and need to ask too. But we'll get to this in a minute. For now, it's important to remember that this is the way the scripture is written. And it was to a particular audience in time, answering a different set of questions. Genesis was never meant to answer questions like we had. Like how did our physical world come to be in a specific scientific process? It was never intended to give us an accurate chronological timeline for our origins or this physical world as we know it. It was never designed to be a scientific textbook. But it was written for us. Although it was written to a specific audience in time and space, it was written for all mankind for all time. And this is really important to understand because it helps us to see the God behind all of the culturally weird stuff, especially in books like Leviticus, and to see the intention behind such laws. It helps us to see the book as it was intended. One which highlights the goodness and the grace and the majesty of God. And to show us what God is like and how he relates to mankind. 
These are the answers to the questions that aren't restricted to an ancient audience. How, and these are the sorts of questions that we should still be asking today. Who are we and what is our purpose? How are we to relate to God? So Genesis was written to express many things about God. Who he is, why he created, not how but why. And as we go through this book study on Genesis, we'll uncover some of the other big picture truths that speak to us today as well. And one last helpful thing to say before we dive in is the authorship of Genesis. It's generally accepted that Moses was responsible for composing these first five books of the Bible, known as the Pentateuch, um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Being raised in the courts of Pharaoh, he was very well educated and familiar with the worldview and the law codes of the ancient Near East, which helped shape his writings. For example, the book of the Covenant in Exodus uh, is written in a very similar way to the Code of Hammurabi, which is the ancient law code of um, the ancient Near East. God, through Moses gave the story of the origin in the language that they were familiar with. And he used Moses. Giving them a creation account that was, in a way, similar, with similar language, but in a starkly different um, story, as we will hear next week. So the Babylonians had a creation account, and God had given his people a creation account. And we're going to hear a bit more about that again next week, so I'm setting Graham up for a massive big task here. Um, Many theories have been debated about when Genesis was actually written down or recorded. Um, One of them was being that it was uh, written in the post-exile period to give the Hebrew people hope in the midst of the Babylonian captivity. But this has mostly been dismissed because there is strong evidence that pre-exilic authors like David were familiar with the text of Genesis. You only have to look at Psalm 8 to see that it's pretty much the creation account put into a psalm. Um, But generally, scholars have concluded that we actually don't have uh, uh, reliable criteria for dating the books of the Pentateuch, so we just have to leave that for now. Um, We have to be okay with that. As modern humans are often obsessed with knowing who exactly wrote what, but the ancient audiences were more concerned with the authority that lay behind it. So the book of Isaiah wasn't actually written by Isaiah himself, um, but by his scribes almost like his secretary. But Isaiah is attributed to be the author uh, because he is the one who had the authority behind it. The scribes were the actual physical authors, but they don't get attributed to the authority. And the same goes with Moses in the Pentateuch in a way. So scribes were trained to um, preserve the text and to reproduce it as the years went by, and they added textual notes to it. So when we read Genesis and the first five books, um, at the end we read about Moses' death. Now, Clearly Moses couldn't have written about that because he was dead. Um, but the scribes were the ones who would have added that textual uh, note in. Bruce Waltke explains, The historical books as a whole, including Genesis, are probably anonymous in part because they were living texts in the hands of the scribes who kept the text current for the people of God. Does that make sense? Cool. So with all of this in mind, all of that preamble and background, we're going to jump into Genesis. So let's turn to the text at the beginning of chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does this say to the ancient audience? This one verse says seven amazing things. Let me show you. Firstly, it says that God was already there before the creation of matter, before everything that they know. If you think about the ancient audience, that was quite different. They believed that the gods were already there. They were already created. They were part of creation. This is saying God was already there. It says that God created from nothing. When we look at the actual Hebrew words, which 
I won't bore you with, it's clear that he actually created from nothing. He brought the very building blocks of matter into being. It doesn't say how, but that he was behind it. God created with intention. And already, again, this tells the audience that God is very different to the other gods in the religious environments around them. He creates from nothing. He doesn't simply rearrange. He also creates with intent, with purpose. There is no sign of cosmic battle at the beginning of this creation account as there are at other um, creation accounts. Uh, And we'll hear about more more of that next week. The fourth thing it says is that the Hebrew word um, used in this passage is for God is Elohim. Now this form is plural in Hebrew and it denotes God's majesty. There is something that we miss as English readers when we read this. We just read, oh yeah, in the beginning, God. But this particular Hebrew word, the Elohim, speaks um, to the original audience in a way that we miss. God is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He is majestic, he is supreme, and he is all three, the Trinity, is present at creation. We see the Spirit mentioned in verse 2, and in verse 3 we see God speaks, and we know that God, that Jesus is God's, God's word, uh, as we know from John's Gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, you know that passage. Um, so all things, through him all things were made, without him nothing has been made. So we know that uh, God is supreme, and that all three... The Trinity was present at creation. And that kind of echoes here. This name of God, Elohim, also represents his transcendent relationship to creation. He is complete in himself, without beginning, without opposition, and without limitations of power. Again, so different to the ancient gods. He is apart from creation. Creation is not divine. He is divine, creation is not. There is no need for fear of the moon or the sun or the storm. They are not furious gods or the actions of furious gods. The natural world is what God has created. And as we read on, it was good. But although he is apart from creation and separate from creation, God is in relationship with what he creates. Again, totally contrasting to the ancient worldview of the gods um, around creation. This God is not part of creation And he does not need humankind to meet his needs. He is the one and only God. There is no competition. There are not multiple gods to contend with. And the seventh point, God communicates. The very fact that this account exists tells the audience something else. God himself is communicating with his people. This is big news. We just don't understand how big it was for them because we just take it for granted that God's given us the Bible. Here he is communicating with his people in a way that the ancient gods never did. In the beginning, I'm going to tell you a story of why I created you, why you're here, what your purpose is, but most importantly, who I am and what I'm like. Already you can tell I'm different to all the other gods and the religions around you. This was such dramatic news for a, for a people who were bound by anxiety of not knowing how to serve their gods. Here we have someone who's totally different. Let alone the fact that he is a God full of grace and truth and love. Um, This message to the ancient people is actually timeless and of complete importance for all of us as the people of God today. God is the one who created. God is the one who set things in motion. Whether you currently believe it was a literal seven days or not, what God is saying here is that from the beginning, he is the one who brought the world into being from nothing. He created you and I. 
He does not need us, but he created us because he wanted to love us. He wanted to reveal himself to us. That's one of the characteristics of the Trinity. And as I was preparing this message, I actually felt the Lord impress upon me that there is someone either physically here or who will be listening um, on to the recording who needs to hear that they were created by God because he wanted to create them. You are not an accident. Perhaps your parents didn't plan your conception, and that can be a very painful set of circumstances. But God knew about you, and he called you into being. And he desires to have you here and to be in relationship with you. He has a purpose for your life. The whole Trinity is Father, Son, and Spirit, is the only one with authority and with power. And no other God of this world can rival him. Amen? God has created, and as we will see next week, with intent, with purpose, out of love, not out of a cosmic battle or as a side hustle or because he got bored up there. And let's take a step backwards as we close. Let's just read one more time. In the beginning, God. The story of scripture begins with God. And if there's one thing for us to take away from these first two verses of chapter one, and we're really, we've only touched on chapter one, verse one, it's this. This is the right order of things. This book is about God, about who he is, about what he has done, and how he has pursued his fallen creation as we've walked away from him, what he has done to redeem us. And we need to get this order right. The minute we put ourselves at the centre and at the beginning, we get it wrong. I don't know how many times I have heard the creation story start with the fall. (laughs) In the beginning, God. We all cerebrally know this, and if I asked any Christian, I'm sure most of us would agree, yeah, of course it's about God. But I wonder how much do we actually live this? How much do we live like God is at the centre of our lives in reality? So much of our lives, our worries, our concerns, our loves, the things that we do in life, we actually live as if we are at the centre and everything starts with us. But part of the journey of faith is putting God back in his rightful place, continually at the centre of our lives and at the beginning of everything. And as I close, it's important for us to remember and reorient ourselves to the fact that God is at the beginning of story of Scripture, all throughout Scripture and at the end, in Revelation and beyond. This is about Him, and it's only in Him that we find our created purpose. As Colossians 1.15 declares, the Son... Oh, I forgot to put that slide up. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. Let's pray. Lord, We so often live as if we are at the centre of everything. We live as if you are a side note. We live as if you are not at the beginning of everything. And Lord, I don't know what that looks like for each of us. You do. I ask that you would help us this week to meditate on this verse in Genesis 1. That you are at the beginning. You are at the centre. And everything is about you, Lord. Please continue to um, draw us closer towards you and reveal to us the way that we can live as if this is the truth, as this is the truth in our lives. Amen.